0: book three chapter six of my own story by emmeline pankhurst this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by kay hand the women's revolution chapter six prison had indeed been for us a battleground ever since the time when we had solemnly resolved that as a matter of principle we would not submit to the rules that bound ordinary offenders against the law but when i entered holloway on that april day in nineteen thirteen it was with full knowledge that i had before me a far more prolonged struggle than any that the militant suffragists had hitherto faced i have described the hunger strike that terrible weapon with which we had repeatedly broken our prison bars the government at their wits end to cope with the hunger strikers and to overcome a situation which had brought the laws of england into such scandalous disrepute had had recourse to a measure surely the most savagely devised ever brought before a modern parliament in march of that year while i was waiting trial on the charge of conspiring to destroy mr lloyd george's country home a bill was introduced into the house of commons by the home secretary mr reginald mckenna a bill which had for its avowed object the breaking down of the hunger strike this measure now universally known as the cat and mouse act provided that when a hunger striking suffrage prisoner the law was frankly admitted to apply only to suffrage prisoners was certified by the prison doctors to be in danger of death, she could be ordered released on a sort of ticket of leave for the purpose of regaining strength enough to undergo the remainder of her sentence. Released, she was still a prisoner. The prisoner, or the patient, or the victim, as you may choose to call her, being kept under constant police surveillance. According to the terms of the bill, the prisoner was released for a specified number of days, at the expiration of which she was supposed to return to prison on her own account, says the Act. The period of temporary discharge may, if the Secretary of State thinks fit, be extended on a representation of the prisoner that the state of her health renders her unfit to return to prison. If such representation be made, the prisoner shall submit herself, if so required, for medical examination by the medical officer of the above-mentioned prison or other registered medical practitioner appointed by the Secretary of State the prisoner shall notify to the commissioner of police of the metropolis the place of residence to which she goes on her discharge she shall not change her residence without giving one clear day's notice in writing to the commissioner specifying the residence to which she is going and she shall not be temporarily absent from her residence for more than twelve hours without giving a like notice etc. The idea of militant suffragists respecting a law of this order is almost humorous, and yet the smile dies before the pity one feels for the minister whose confession of failure is embodied in such a measure. Here was a mighty government weakly resolved that justice to women it would not grant, knowing that submission of women it could not force, and so was willing to compromise with a piece of class legislation absolutely contrary to all of its avowed principles said mr mckenna pleading in the house for the advancement of his odious measure at the present time i cannot make these prisoners undergo their sentences without serious risk of death and i want to have power to enable me to compel a prisoner to undergo the sentence and i want that power in all cases where the prisoner adopts the system of the hunger strike at the present moment although i have the power of release i cannot release a prisoner without a pardon and i have to discharge them for good i want the power of releasing a prisoner without a pardon with the sentence remaining alive i want to enforce the law and i want if i can to enforce it without forcible feeding and without undergoing the risk of someone else's life interrogated by several members mr mckenna admitted that the cat-and-mouse bill if passed would not inevitably do away with forcible feedings but he promised that the hateful and disgusting process would be restored to only when absolutely necessary we shall see later how hypocritical this representation was parliament which had never had time to consider beyond its initial stages a women's suffrage measure passed the cat-and-mouse act through both houses within the limits of a few days it was already law when i entered holloway on april third nineteen thirteen and i grieve to state that many members of the labour party pledged to support women's suffrage helped to make it into law of course the act was from its inception treated by the suffragists with the utmost contempt we had not the slightest intention of assisting mr mckenna in enforcing unjust sentences against soldiers in the army of freedom and when the prison doors closed behind me i adopted the hunger strike exactly as though i expected it to prove as formerly a means of gaining my liberty that struggle is not a pleasant one to recall every possible means of breaking down my resolution was resorted to the daintiest and most tempting food was placed in my cell all sorts of arguments were brought to bear against me the futility of resisting the cat-and-mouse act the wickedness of risking suicide i shall not attempt to record all the arguments they fell against a blank wall of consciousness for my thoughts were all very far away from holloway and all its torments i knew what afterwards i learned as a fact that my imprisonment was followed by the greatest revolutionary outbreak that had been witnessed in england since eighteen thirty two from one end of the island to the other the beacons of the women's revolution blazed night and day many country houses all unoccupied were fired the grand stand of race racecourse was burned to the ground a bomb was exploded in oxted station london blowing out walls and windows some empty railroad carriages were blown up the glass of thirteen famous paintings in the manchester art gallery were smashed with hammers These are simply random specimens of the general outbreak of secret guerrilla warfare waged by women, to whose liberties every other approach had been barricaded by the Liberal government of Free England. The only answer of the government was the closing of the British Museum, the National Gallery, Windsor Castle, and other tourist resorts. As for the result, on the people of England, that was exactly what we had anticipated. The public were thrown into a state of emotion of insecurity and frightened expectancy not yet did they show themselves ready to demand of the government that the outrages be stopped in the only way they could be stopped by giving votes to women i knew that it would be so lying in my lonely cell in holloway racked with pain oppressed with increasing weakness depressed with the heavy responsibility of unknown happenings i was sadly aware that we were but approaching a far goal the end though certain was still distant patience and still more patience faith and still more faith well we had called upon these souls help before and it was certain that they would not fail us at this greatest crisis of all thus in great anguish of mind and body passed nine terrible days each one longer and more acutely miserable than the preceding towards the last i was mercifully half unconscious of my surroundings a curious indifference took possession of my overwrought mind and it was almost without emotion that i heard on the morning of the tenth day that i was to be released temporarily in order to recover my health the governor came to my cell and read me my license which commanded me to return to holloway in fifteen days and meanwhile to observe all the obsequious terms as to informing the police of my movements with what strength my hands retained i tore the document in strips and dropped it on the floor of the cell i have no intention i said of obeying this infamous law you release me knowing perfectly well that i shall never voluntarily return to any of your prisons they sent me away sitting bolt upright in a cab unmindful of the fact that i was in a dangerous condition of weakness having lost two stone in weight and suffered seriously from irregularities of heart action as i left the prison i was gratefully aware of groups of our women standing bravely at the gates as though enduring a long vigil as a matter of fact relays of women had picketed the place day and night during the whole term of my imprisonment the first pickets were arrested but as others constantly arrived to fill their places the police finally gave in and allowed the women to march up and down before the prison carrying the flag at the nursing home to which i was conveyed i learned that annie kenney mrs drummond and our staunch friend mr george lansbury had been arrested during my imprisonment and that all three had adopted the hunger strike i also learned on my own account how desperately the government were striving to make their cat-and-mouse act the last stand in their losing campaign a success without regard to the extra expense laid on the unfortunate taxpayers of the country the government employed a large extra force of police especially for this purpose as i lay in bed being assisted by every medical resource to return to life and health these special police colloquially termed cats guarded the nursing home as if it were a besieged castle in the street under my windows two detectives and a constable stood on guard night and day in a house at right angles to my refuge three more detectives kept constant watch in the mews at the rear of the house were more detectives and diligently patrolling the road as if in expectation of a rescuing regiment two taxicabs each with its quota of detectives guarded the highways all this made recovery slow and difficult but worse was to come on april thirtieth just as i was beginning to rally somewhat came the news that the police had swooped down on our headquarters in kingsway and had arrested the entire official force miss barrett associate editor of the suffragette miss lennox the sub-editor miss lake business manager miss kerr office manager and mrs sanders financial secretary of the union were arrested although not one of them had ever appeared in any militant action mr e g clayton a chemist was also arrested accused of furnishing the w s p u with explosive materials the offices were thoroughly searched and as on a former occasion stripped of all books and papers while this was being done another party of police armed with a special warrant proceeded to the printing office where our paper the suffragette was published The printer, Mr. Drew, was placed under arrest, and the material for the paper, which was to appear on the following day, was seized. By one o'clock in the afternoon the entire plant and the headquarters of the Union were in the hands of the police, and to all appearances the militant movement, temporarily at least, was brought to a full stop. In my state of semi-prostration it at first seemed to me best to let the week's issue of the paper lapse, but on second thought I decided that even the appearance of surrender was not to be thought of. How we managed it need not be here told, but we actually did, overnight with hardly any material except christabel's leading article and with hastily summoned helpers get out the paper as usual and side by side with the morning journals which bore the front page stories of the suppression of the suffragette organ our paper sellers sold the suffragette the front page bore instead of the usual cartoon the single word in bold-faced type rated the full story of the police search and the arrest being related in the other pages our headquarters i may say in passing remained closed less than forty-eight hours we were so organized that the arrest of leaders does not seriously cripple us every one has an understudy and when one leader drops out her substitute is ready instantly to take her place in this emergency there appeared as chief organizer in miss kenny's place miss grace Rowe, one of the young suffragettes of whom i as belonging to the older generation am so proud faced by difficulties as great as the government could make them miss Rowe at once showed herself to be equal to the situation and to have the gift of unswerving loyalty combined with a strong and rapid judgment of things and people aiding her was mrs darcy fox who surprised us all by her amazing ability to act as assistant editor of the suffragette manage a host of affairs in the office and preside at our weekly meetings another member of the union who came prominently to the front at the time of this crisis was mrs mansell in two days time the office was open and running quite as usual no outward sign showing the grief and indignation felt for our imprisoned comrades most of them refused bail and instantly hunger struck appearing in court for trial three days later in a pitiful state mrs drummond was so obviously ill and in need of medical attention that she was discharged and was very soon afterwards operated upon mr drew the printer was forced to sign an undertaking not to publish the paper again the others were sentenced to terms varying from six to eighteen months mr clayton was sentenced to twenty-one months and after desperate resistance during which he was forcibly fed many times escaped his prison the others following the same example starved their way to liberty and have ever since been pursued at intervals and rearrested under the cat and mouse act after my discharge april twelfth i remained in the nursing home until partially restored then under the eyes of the police i motored out to woking the country home of my friend dr ethelsmith this house like the nursing home was guarded by a small army of police i never went to the window i never took air in the garden without being conscious of watching eyes the situation became intolerable and i determined to end it on may twenty sixth there was a great meeting at the london pavilion and i gave notice that i would attend it supported by dr flora murray dr Ethel smith and my devoted nurse pine i walked downstairs to be confronted at the door by a detective who demanded to know where i was going i was in a weak state much weaker than i had imagined and in refusing the right of a man to question my movements i exhausted the last remnant of my strength and sunk fainting into the arms of my friends as soon as i recovered i got into the motor-car the detective instantly took his place beside me and told the chauffeur to drive to bow street station the chauffeur replied that he took his orders only from mrs pankhurst whereupon the detective summoned a taxicab and placing me under arrest took me to bow street under the cat and mouse act a paroled prisoner can be thus arrested without the formality of a warrant nor does the time she has spent at liberty in regaining her health count off from her prison sentence the magistrate of bow street was therefore quite within his legal rights when he ordered me returned to holloway i felt it my duty nevertheless to point out to him the inhumanity of his act i said to him i was released from holloway on account of my health since then i have been treated exactly as if i were in prison it has become absolutely impossible for anyone to recover health under such conditions and this morning i decided to make this protest against a state of affairs unparalleled in a civilized country the magistrate replied formally you quite understand what the position is you have been arrested on this warrant and all i have to do is to make an order recommending you to prison i think i said that you should do so with a full sense of responsibility if i am taken a holloway on your warrant i shall resume the protest i made before which led to my release and i shall go on indefinitely until i die or until the government decides since they have taken upon themselves to employ you and all other people to minister the laws that they must recognize women as citizens and give them some control over the laws of the country it was a five days hunger strike this time because the extreme weakness of my condition made it impossible for me to endure a longer term i was released on may thirtieth on a seven-day license and in a half-alive state was again carried to a nursing home less than a week later while i was still bedridden a terrible event occurred one that should have shaken the stolid british public into a realization of the seriousness of the situation precipitated by the government emily wilding davison who had been associated with the militant movement since nineteen o six gave up her life for the women's cause by throwing herself in the path of the thing next to property held most sacred to englishmen sport miss davison went to the races at epsom and breaking through the barriers which separated the vast crowds from the race-course rushed in the path of the galloping horses and caught the bridle of the king's horse which was leading all the others the horse fell throwing his jockey and crushing miss davison in such shocking fashion that she was carried from the course in a dying condition everything possible was done to save her life the great surgeon mr mansell moulin put everything aside and devoted himself to her case but though he operated most skillfully the injuries she had received were so frightful that she died four days later without once having recovered consciousness members of the union were beside her when she breathed her last on june 8th and on june 14th they gave her a great public funeral in london Crowds lined the streets as the funeral car, followed by thousands of women, passed slowly and sadly to St. George's Church, Bloomsbury, where the memorial services were held. Emily Wilding Davison was a character almost inevitably developed by a struggle such as ours. She was a B.A. of London University, and had taken first-class honors at Oxford in English Language and Literature yet the woman's cause made such an appeal to her reason and her sympathies that she put every intellectual and social appeal aside and devoted herself untiringly and fearlessly to the work of the union she had suffered many imprisonments had been forcibly fed and most brutally treated on one occasion when she had barricaded her cell against the prison doctors a hose-pipe was turned on her from the window and she was drenched and all but drowned in icy water while workmen were breaking down her cell door miss davison after this experience expressed to several of her friends the deep conviction that now as in days called uncivilized the conscience of the people would awaken only to the sacrifice of a human life at one time in prison she tried to kill herself by throwing herself headlong from one of the upper galleries but she succeeded only in sustaining cruel injuries even after that time she clung to her conviction that one great tragedy the deliberate throwing into the breach of a human life would put an end to the intolerable torture of women and so she threw herself at the king's horse in full view of the king and queen and a great multitude of their majesty's subjects offering up her life as a petition to the king praying for the release of suffering women throughout england and the world no one can possibly doubt that that prayer can forever remain unanswered for she took it straight to the throne of the king of all the worlds the death of miss davison was a great shock to me and a very great grief as well and although i was scarcely able to leave my bed i determined to risk everything to attend her funeral this was not to be however for as i left the house i was again arrested by detectives who lay in waiting again the farce of trying to make me serve a three-year sentence was undertaken but now the militant women had discovered a new and more terrible weapon with which to defy the unjust laws of england and this weapon the thirst strike i turned against my jailers with such effect that they were forced within three days to release me The hunger strike I have described as a dreadful ordeal, but it is a mild experience compared with the thirst strike, which is from beginning to end simple and unmitigated torture. Hunger striking reduces a prisoner's weight very quickly, but thirst striking reduces weight so alarmingly fast that prison doctors were at first thrown into absolute panic of fright. Later they became somewhat hardened, but even now they regard the thirst strike with terror i am not sure that i can convey to the reader the effect of day spent without a single drop of water taken into the system the body cannot endure loss of moisture it cries out in protest with every nerve the muscles waste the skin becomes shrunken and flabby the facial appearance alters horribly all these outward symptoms being eloquent of the acute suffering of the entire physical being Every natural function is, of course, suspended, and the poisons which are unable to pass out of the body are retained and absorbed. The body becomes cold and shivery, there is constant headache and nausea, and sometimes there is fever. The mouth and tongue become coated and swollen, the throat thickens, and the voice sinks to a thready whisper. When, at the end of the third day of my first thirst strike, I was sent home, I was in condition of jaundice from which I have never completely recovered so badly was i affected that the prison authorities made no attempt to arrest me for nearly a month after my release on july thirteenth i felt strong enough once more to protest against the odious cat-and-mouse act and with miss annie kenney who was also at liberty on medical grounds i went to a meeting at the london pavilion at the close of the meeting during which miss kenney's prison license was auctioned off for twelve pounds we attempted for the first time the open escape which we have so frequently since effected miss Kenny from the platform announced that we should openly leave the hall and she forthwith walked coolly down into the audience the police rushed in in overwhelming numbers and after a desperate fight succeeded in capturing her other detectives and policemen hurried to the side door of the hall to intercept me but i disappointed them by leaving the front door and escaping to a friend's house in a cab the police soon traced me to the house of my friend the distinguished scientist mrs hertha ayrton and the place straightway became a besieged fortress day and night the house was surrounded not only by police but by crowds of women sympathizers on the saturday following my appearance at the pavilion we gave the police a bit of excitement of a kind they do not relish a cab drove up to mrs ayrton's door and several well-known members of the union alighted and hurried indoors at once the word was circulated that a rescue was being attempted and the police drew resolutely around the cab soon a veiled woman appeared in the doorway surrounded by suffragettes who when the veiled lady attempted to get into the cab resisted with all their strength the efforts of the police to lay their hands upon her the cry went up from all sides they are arresting mrs pankhurst something very like a free fight ensued occupying all the attention of the police who were not in the immediate vicinity of the cab the men surrounding that rocking vehicle succeeded in tearing the veiled figure from the arms of the other woman and piling into the cab ordered the chauffeur to drive full speed to bow street before they reached their destination however the veiled lady raised her veil alas it was not mrs pankhurst who by that time was speeding away in another taxi cab in quite another direction our ruse infuriated the police and they determined to arrest me at my first public appearance which was at the pavilion on the monday following the episode just related when i reached the pavilion i found it was literally surrounded by police hundreds of them i managed to slip past the outside cordon but scotland yard had its best men inside the hall and i was not permitted to reach the platform surrounded by plain men batons drawn i could not escape but i called out to the women that i was being taken and so valiantly did they rush to the rescue that the police had their hands full for nearly half an hour before they got me into a taxicab bound for Holloway. Six women were arrested that day, and many more than six policemen were temporarily incapacitated for duty. By this time I had made up my mind that I would not only resist staying in prison, I would resist to the utmost of my ability going to prison. Therefore, when we reached Holloway, I refused to get out of the cab, declaring to my captors that I would no longer acquiesce in the slow judicial murder to which the government were subjecting women. I was lifted out and carried into a cell in the convicted hospital wing of the jail the wardresses who were on duty there spoke with some kindness to me suggesting that as i was very apparently exhausted and ill i should do well to undress and go to bed no i replied i shall not go to bed not once while i am kept here i am weary of this brutal game and i intend to end it without undressing i lay down on the outside of the bed later in the evening the prison doctor visited me but i refused to be examined in the morning he came again and with him the governor and the head wardress as i had taken neither food nor water since the previous day my appearance had become altered to such an extent that the doctor was plainly perturbed he begged me as a small concession to allow him to feel my pulse but i shook my head and they left me alone for the day that night i was so ill that i felt some alarm for my own condition but i knew of nothing that could be done except to wait on wednesday morning the governor came again and asked me with an assumption of carelessness if it were true that i was refusing both food and water it is true i said and he replied brutally you are very cheap to keep then as if the thing were not a ridiculous farce he announced that i was sentenced to close confinement for three days with deprivation of all privileges after which he left my cell twice that day the doctor visited me but i would not allow him to touch me later came a medical officer from the home office to which i complained as i had complained to the governor and the prison doctor of the pain i still suffered from the rough treatment i had received at the pavilion both of the medical men insisted that i allow them to examine me but i said i will not be examined by you because your intention is not to help me as a patient but merely to ascertain how much longer it will be possible to keep me alive in prison i am not prepared to assist you or the government in any such way i am not prepared to relieve you of any responsibility in this matter I added that it must be quite obvious that i was very ill and unfit to be confined in prison they hesitated for a moment or two then left me wednesday night was a long nightmare of suffering and by thursday morning i must present it in almost mummified appearance from the faces of the governor and the doctor when they came into my cell and looked at me i thought they would at once arrange for my release but the hours passed and no order for release came i decided that i must force my release and i got up from the bed where i had been lying and began to stagger up and down the cell when all strength failed me and i could keep my feet no longer i lay down on the stone floor and there at four in the afternoon they found me gasping and half unconscious and then they sent me away i was in a very weakened condition this time and had to be treated with saline solutions to save my life i felt however that i had broken my prison walls for a time at least and so this proved it was on july twenty fourth that i was released a few days later i was borne in an invalid's chair to the platform of the london pavilion i could not speak but I was there, as I had promised to be. My license, which by this time I had ceased to tear up, because it had an auction value, was sold to an American present for the sum of one hundred pounds. I had told the Governor on leaving that I intended to sell the license and to spend the money for militant purposes, but I had not expected to raise such a splendid sum as one hundred pounds. I shall always remember the generosity of that unknown American friend." a great medical congress was being held in london in the summer of nineteen thirteen and on august eleventh we held a large meeting at kingsway hall which was attended by hundreds of visiting doctors i addressed this meeting at which a ringing resolution against forcible feeding was passed and i was allowed to go home without police interference it was as a matter of fact the second time during that month that i had spoken in public without molestation the presence of so many distinguished medical men in london may have suggested to the authorities that i had better be left alone for the time being At all events, I was left alone, and late in the month I went, quite publicly, to Paris to see my daughter Christabel, and plan with her the campaign for the coming autumn. I needed rest after the struggles of the past five months, during which I had served, of my three years' prison sentence, not quite three weeks. End of Book Three, Chapter Six